Thank you for downloading the IA podcast. The episode you're about to listen to was originally featured as a video on the IA's YouTube channel, IA London. But we've taken the audio and we've turned it into a podcast so that you can listen on the go. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Markets and Morality, our IA show where we explore contradicting opinions within the classical liberal conservative tent. I will be your host, Adam Bartha, the head of international outreach here at the IA. As you have noticed, tensions are at an all-time high because of the Russian aggression in Ukraine that brought back a period that most of us in the West thought were behind us. Hundreds of Europeans are dying every day and millions are displaced as a result of a militaristic expansionism by the Russian regime. And as a result, it's crossed the minds of many people in the last few weeks how far Putin will go and what we can do to protect ourselves. And one of the immediate responses to Russian militarism was for Germany to significantly increase its military spending. And very similar voices arose in France and here in the UK as well. So today's discussion will be on whether free marketeers and conservatives should be supporting an increased defense budget here in the UK. And to discuss this, I'm delighted to welcome two prominent free marketeers, Jamie White and Samuel Armstrong. Sam is the Director of Communications and the head at the Henry Jackson Society, and he is responsible for leading the Society's media work. Prior to joining the Society, Sam worked for um, a Conservative Member of Parliament as Chief of Staff, and before that, um, he was working for the Conservative Party um, and its anti-UKIP division. I'm also delighted to welcome Jamie White to the conversation. Um, Jamie is a senior research fellow here at the IA and a best-selling author who wrote Crimes Against Logic. Jamie is also a former leader of ACT New Zealand, a free market political party down under. Gentlemen, it's great to have you on board. Be with you. Hello. Sam, I would like to start with you. As you know, the UK spends more on defense than France, Germany, or indeed any other European country. Um, Germany already committed to higher defense spending. Uh, France is considering the same. Um, do you think this is just a race to make sure that the UK maintains its lead when it comes to defense spending, or are there better reasons to commit to a higher defense budget? Well, it's right to say that the UK spends a disproportionate amount on our national defence compared to our European uh, allies currently. But it's not the case that the UK has always spent uh, this amount of money or indeed that this is a historically high point. In fact, quite the opposite. We've dramatically reduced our spending uh, on defence, as indeed has France and other European countries uh, since the end of the Cold War, as the declining uh, r perceived risk of the international um, security situation continued throughout the what I would describe as the end of history delusion uh, period in global affairs, that point after the Cold War in which we thought that real conflict was behind us as a world. What we're seeing, I think, is that recognition that, oh boy, was that an error? We got that wrong. Uh, and accordingly, not only do we have to think about changing great swathes of our, our, 
our policy and our posture towards other countries and our real whole philosophy, actually. But we also need to spend money on hard defence. I mean, one great example is in the integrated review last year and the following up defence command paper, the government really in this country declared the end of the tank, uh, saying all future wars won't be fought with the tank. Well, uh, boy, are they being fought with the tank right now, where we're seeing great staged land battles taking place in Europe once more. So this is, I think, a, a reflection of, yes, current situation, but it's also a sort of correction to a misunderstanding uh, of the dangers in the global space uh, in, in the period running up to, to this year. Sure. I know that, Jamie, you come from a very libertarian background indeed, um, but a lot of libertarians do agree that some level of government spending is necessary, and that government spending usually includes the military. Um, first of all, do you agree that the UK military and defense should be financed through general taxation? And if so, is there a right level of defense spending or should it be consistently adjusted based on the level of threat that the country faces? Well, I, I do think that the government should um, supply the military and therefore that it should be funded through taxation. I mean, it, there's a, <clears throat> I'm a great fan of uh, David Friedman's book, The Machinery of Freedom, which is an anarchist uh, book. And it's, <clears throat> it's mainly about how you could do without the government in the area of uh, lawmaking, about how you could have private lawmaking, private law enforcement and so on. He's also got a section on how you could have private, you don't need the state for national defence. And in my opinion, it's the least convincing part of the book. So I, I am of the view that, and also it's a bit of a fantasy, right? We, we don't live in a world like that. So at the moment, we certainly need a military and we need the government to supply it. <clears throat> now, there's of course a problem though. When, when, there's no question about how much are we spending enough on shoes in the United Kingdom? That, that issue doesn't really arise because in a market system, the, you know you're going to get the right amount spent on shoes because everybody's spending their own money and they only buy a pair of shoes if they, pair of shoes if they think they're worth the money. And so you, you've got nothing to worry about. You can observe the amount spent and that's the right amount. Not so with the military because we don't have a market mechanism for getting people to pay for it. So loosely speaking, politi political, it's a democratic mechanism. In the long run, in the short run, it's just a decision by politicians. Um, so do I think it's too high, too low? Uh, you know, I'm reluctant to have a strong opinion on this kind of thing because, as I say, there's no market mechanism for checking that you're right. But <clears throat> I'll just say one thing to start, which is that... I don't think that this conflict in Ukraine has um, shown that it's too low. And there's a simple reason, which is that we, what's, what's making us hold back is not that we are ill-equipped. It's not that we haven't got the resources to take on Russia if we wanted. I mean, the Western Alliance, NATO, easily have got the resources. I mean, in fact, we could easily, I mean, if we wanted to get involved and we weren't worried about nukes, that be, we could wipe them out, I think, given the, the situation they're in right now with our air, air force. But we're reluctant to we're reluctant to get involved because they've got nuclear weapons and we don't want that escalation. So what's holding us back isn't that we're ill-equipped; it's that we we're dealing with a nuclear power, and we are nervous about going any further. It's a kind of a you know what's 
it's what the nukes are supposed to do, right? It's, it's deterrence. And uh, if we had double the, the conventional forces, we still wouldn't be getting involved. Sam, well, what's your reaction on this? Do you agree that the Russian aggression in Eastern Europe doesn't necessarily prove that we need to spend more money on UK defense? Or do you think that we should also increase our spending in order to help other people outside of the UK without necessarily getting involved in a nuclear uh, tit for tat with, with Russia? Yes, well, it's absolutely the case that the UK and Russia's pr prospect of entering into open conflict is greatly constrained by um, the presence of nuclear weapons that make any form of direct conflict, I think, both undesirable and probably impossible. Uh, that having been said, um, the UK has interests, including the interests of our values and alliances with other countries. Now, there is a uh, policy imperative and a desirability for taking steps, including through taxation and uh, raising, raising money and in increasing the GDP outlay to enable us to defend those um, overseas. And, uh, you know, it's a little bit like being uh, a domino that's fairly sure it's not going to fall over, uh, but you can see the march of other dominoes coming before you. And there is an incentive to, to draw the line as far away from you as, as humanly possible. Um, now, it didn't always work. Domino theory in the Cold War uh, is, is a demonstrator of that. But what we're talking here is really about 0.5% of GDP or something similar. The, 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 the potential opportunity gains of spending uh, those sums of money actually mean that um, uh, what you... That that greatly outweighs any cost, and, and I think it's a slight misnomer. I, I I do think there is a strain of thought that is what I call sort of nuclear isolationist libertarianism. Some somewhat what Ron Paul was talking about at times, which is we've got our nuclear weapons, we can defend ourselves. We don't need to spend anything else on there, and we can put all of our eggs in that one basket. I think for a number of reasons that that's not actually an accurate assessment of, of, of what the international situation is or indeed of the kind of well-rounded response that, that Western countries should be adopting. So Western countries should be spending money in order to protect some of their allies rather than just themselves. Um, Jamie, you, you mentioned that it's almost impossible to put a number on defense spending, but that is exactly the job of the government. They do put it up on it. At the moment, they just spent over 2% of the GDP each year, which is about 45 billion pounds or roughly 660 pounds per person. Um, Rishi Shunak will say in his spring statement probably a further increased number. Um, if you were advising the government, it's fair to say that from a purely theoretical academic perspective, it's impossible to put a number on it. But if you had to advise the government or were in government yourself, what would you do? I mean, there is a number that is the case at the moment. Would you lower that? Would you keep that the same? Or maybe even increase that under certain scenarios if the Russian-Ukrainian conflict is escalating? Well, I wouldn't increase it. I'll say that much clearly. And uh, let me try and defend Ron Paul's libertarian uh, nuclear isolationism. Uh, or I'd never heard that expression, but it was very apt. I know, and I have been known to say this, espouse this view myself. 
Uh, why would I espouse that view? Well, from a defensive point of view, nukes go a long way. Uh, I guess if France tried to invade Britain, that would be a problem, right? Because if we nuke them, we get a uh, blowback. <laughs> you know, it, we, we might get the radiation ourselves, but I don't think France is likely to invade the UK. Um, why would I want conventional forces as well? That's the question. And there's, now, a lot of libertarians don't like state action overseas, right? They don't, they disapprove of it. And whether you disapprove of it in principle or not, I think that uh, it doesn't have a great track record. I mean, if you look at, uh, I can't, World War II was basically defensive. Um, we had an alliance with Poland that drew us in initially, we had been attacked, but I think anybody, anyone in Europe could have defended action against the Nazis as defensive. Um, since then, we've got involved in a lot of a number of wars um, it, which haven't been defensive. They've been on behalf of other parties or in aid of some geopolitical agenda that we thought we should should pursue, and they haven't worked out terribly well. Um, and I think that we ought to be reluctant to get involved in that kind of business. And having limited, uh, having limited capacity to do so uh, may be a good discipline on us. It may stop us getting tempted into that kind of thing. So I've got quite a lot of sympathy for the Ron Paul kind of a view. Um, you would need some ground forces, some conventional forces for even I think, uh, I mean, there, there may be occasions, I think in Britain's case, there could easily be occasions where historic allies, perhaps ex-British uh, colonies, might need some assistance. We might want to offer them some assistance in a conflict which clearly isn't threatening, where they are clearly being attacked. Um, I can imagine that kind of thing, but I think we've got the resources for that. I, I don't want to talk too long. I think there are other reasons we don't need to increase our spending. Uh, which I'll come to, but you, you can ask another question. I, I am curious about that point. If I might jump in there, is to, as to ask what what are the what are the principles by which um, it is justifiable to step in to defend the liberty of a country that has historic links through the Commonwealth to us, but that it is not. Um, uh, justifiable or, or desirable to step in on behalf of, say, for example, Taiwan, that has no tradition, no Commonwealth alliance with us, but is nonetheless, it, it is a conflict fundamentally about a totalitarian state trying to take on a, 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 a free, democratic and liberal one. Well, I'm not that hung up on, on that uh, division, but, but I would do, I think this, I mean, my, I'm a New Zealander uh, by birth, I live in England now, but you know, New Zealanders, the Queen is our head of state, and if uh, I don't know, Indonesia were to uh, invade New Zealand, I would hope that somehow the British would think, well, you know, here's a country with the Queen as the head of state, um, and it's being attacked, and we should defend it. Now, I, I also think that uh, the, the question's always going to be this, to take Taiwan, right? So Taiwan might get invaded, if it's going to be invaded, it'll be by China. China's a nuclear power. And are we going to get involved? Um, the, well, I think all the same issues would arise that are now arising around Ukraine, right? It would be in the same kind of a position. And again, the issue wouldn't be, oh, we, we can't 
take on the Chinese. I mean, the, you know, between the Western alliance can take on the Chinese at the moment, at least. Uh, it's just that it would be really reluctant to, given, given the nukes. So <clears throat> conventional weapons used, conventional military forces used overseas seem to me to be relevant really only when, only when we're dealing with a non-nuclear um, aggressor. Mm. Iraq um, was the case, right? Not that Iraq was an aggressor. It was in the first, it was in the first Gulf War, not in the second. Um, so <clears throat> I just, you know, I think we could spend an awful lot of money. We could have, let's say, we could increase our conventional forces by 50%. And so what? We, we would, that would make a negligible effect to the total Western Alliance's forces. And it wouldn't overcome the thing that stops us now using our significant force available, which is fear of escalation into nuclear conflict. So I guess I'm coming back to my original point. Sam, I would like to challenge you for a second because you have mentioned that the current scenario of geopolitical tensions basically justify um, an increase of military spending. But both of us are pretty free market oriented. So we are very well aware of the incredible government waste that's happening, whether we are talking about massive infrastructure projects like HS2 or healthcare, or indeed defense spending. Um, so when we are talking about defense spending, shouldn't we talk about improving spending efficiency rather than throwing more money at the problem? Yeah, there's two points there. I think actually probably the, the irony of the dispute between Jamie and myself is actually, it's slightly reflective of the dispute that communists have on the other side, which is there are groups of communists that believe um, that countries ought to focus on themselves and their own journey towards fuller and, and more fulsome communism. And there are those that are internationalist. Uh, I'm a sort of the uh, free market liberal equivalent of the communist internationalists. Uh, were I a communist, I would be a proud member of Comintern. It's about spreading these values overseas. And I believe all people have the right to, um, to freedom, that freedom isn't free, and that free countries have a duty and obligation to help spread those values beyond. To return to your question, spending money. Well, we all know the state is horrendous at, sp at spending money. It is, it is poor. Um, and there is an extent to which it can and has been shown that when you put the pressure on, it can be... Uh, uh, it can be forced to improve that. Now, defence procurement is the most abysmal form of state spending. Billions are wasted on contracts that nobody in the private sector would ever enter into. And they are consumed with ever more regulation that merely increases costs while decreasing um, what we get out fr from it. For example, defence companies are now banned from making excessive profits. Uh, on defence contracts. Now, that sounds good, but actually what you see is vast amounts of expenses are spent on regulating these profits. Um, profits are really just hidden within businesses um, and, and stuffed in and, and spent on overheads and the overhead expenditure is, is, is ramped up and put up accordingly. And there is no improved outcome. All that being said, all that being said, I am not optimistic about the prospects of um, free market conservative thinkers being able to go into the MOD and dramatically improve outcomes, especially in the short future. 
term future. And I do believe that security spending is an imperative. One of the things, one of the benefits of believing like me that the state's uh, primary objective is the defense of, uh, uh, of the rule of law from threats domestic and um, external is that there's more money to play with in my ideal system. But I do believe if you're going to get the situation to where we need it to get very, very quickly, you need to spend more money. And actually, there is an extent to which that is possible in defence. So one of the mistakes that this country has made in defence spending is we spend a lot of money, a lot of money, buying small numbers of normally British-made, uniquely designed kits, and we get that on the table, we get that ready. Now, as anybody knows, it's creating a unique product it might only cost you 100 million to make a product, but the first one costs you 10 billion to design, mm. make, manufacture. So where there is space for spending money quickly is in buying more kits of which we already have. Um, so I'll give you one example, the cheapest bit of kit to make the hugest bit of difference. Skysaber, our counter aircraft um, system. It is the most booked piece of equipment in the British Army, always used almost 100% utilization. We only have about 12 of the systems. We're seeing more than ever the importance of short and medium range air defense in, in Ukraine. It is incredibly easy to go and buy more of those pieces of kit off the shelf. And the MOD needs to be much, much better at buying kit off the shelf Instead of engaging in this protectionism, buying the best kit from wherever in the alliance it really comes from uh, and getting enough of it so that, you know, should we get summoned into a quick conflict in which prices are going to raise exponentially as supply outweighs demand, we've got those surpluses necessary to, to mount a proper and quick defence. So more trade and less protectionism and a focus on easy kits. I think Jamie would probably agree with that, but I would like to challenge you in a way that relates to finances. Because if you say you want an increased budget by 10%, 15%, the question always appears, where should the money come from? So indeed, where should it come from? Should we increase taxes? Should we increase borrowing? Or should we reprioritize spending and you know, spend less on some of the domestic infrastructure projects and uh, more on military kit? Well, to answer your question, um, the first is reprioritizing spending and cutting from elsewhere. And to be fair, the British government has done that. Um, we cut 0.2% of GDP off aid last year, um, about four, 4 billion uh, quid. Uh, and actually, we also concurrently, although entirely separately, um, spent an additional 4 billion quid on defence. And there is an extent to which international spending, it makes sense to move funding from development, of which you know, I've got some scepticism more generally, but even if you accept it, to move funds away from development as the security threat posed by failed states descends and great power increases away from international development and into uh, military defense. But look, you know, were I the chancellor, I would be making swinging cuts uh, elsewhere and, and drawing those from there. But more philosophically, I think there is an extent to which great unusual occasions, i.e. once in... 50, 100 year events of which I accept the we've just had another one. The pandemic was one, but the return of uh, great power warfare in Europe, I think, is another one. Um, 
is a justification or indeed a potential justification for borrowing. Now, it's not quite the same uh, situation, but I don't think anybody, even those of us who are very nervous about uh, the state incurring debts, objects to war bonds, for example, the state um, uh, collecting, issuing debt uh, in times of a national crisis to be paid back in a time of uh, peace in order to fund its national defence. These kind of matters are the very small number of cases in which I think it would be ever justifiable to run up deliberately a deficit to meet current spending. I mean, the UK just repaid some of its Second World War fourth bonds. Uh, so indeed, some of these borrowing and last a while. But Jimmy, do you agree? Can you imagine a scenario where you would accept an increased borrowing by the state in order to finance some of its military expenditure? I can imagine that if we were under attack. Uh, although, again, it's, I don't see, I, I'm sorry to be boring, but I just have to come back to this. So with the, if we've got a return to great power conflicts, it's not failed, dealing with failed states, it's not Somalia, it's not Iraq and so on, it's, it's China and Russia, then I, it's, it's completely different because we've never had uh, a, this situation where, well, the Cold War was one, right? We've got nuclear and nuclear powers fighting each other. And as you'll notice, the Russians and the Americans never came to direct conflict um, militarily. And uh, so I, I don't, I'm not sure what's going to be achieved. If we're worried about China and Russia, I'm not sure what's going to be achieved by spending 0.5% of GDP more on our conventional forces. I mean, remember, <clears throat> they're isolated, both of those countries, and we are part of a grand alliance with very rich countries. They're all the richest countries in the world, apart from China, are in our team. And the United States spends an absolute fortune on the military. We can make this gesture. Um, I, I don't, I, it'll be re reasonably burdensome for us and make no particular improvement to our ability to deal with the threat posed by China or Russia. So <clears throat> I'm, I'm not sure that, I think nukes, nukes change everything, I think. Um, my other worry, I mean, actually, when you were talking about how to, how, there's this question, of course, not just about how much to spend, but what to spend it on. That's a very interesting question. And, and that question's always going to be there, no matter how much you're spending. And I was thinking uh, while Sam was talking about uh, mercenaries. Mercenary armies probably are much more efficient in this regard than um, the, the government military because they're, they're a profit-making organization, right? So they get commissioned to go and do some uh, military work or quasi-military work. They want the best kit or the best weapons and stuff at the best price so they can be successful and keep their profit margins up. And so one of the worries you have, again, one, one of the temptations think, well, it might be nice if we want to know what kit we should have, what's good. It might be nice to have kind of endless conflicts that we can test it all in. We, we, so we know we can kind of Careful try what out. you wish for, Jamie. Careful well, I, this is, but I'm for. getting to my point, which is a serious one, which is that the military is just having a military and certainly having a bigger one is in itself a, a force towards conflict because they want, those people want conflict. They have a reason to, they want to test it out. They, these are all people who want to be in the military for various reasons, and they're the kind of people who want to fight. And so the more resources you push into them, the more sway they have in society, and the more likely I think you are to get involved in conflict. 
So another reason to be skeptical about uh, bigging up the military is that it could increase the chance of you being drawn into conflict. Uh, no, I'm not being, I'm not, I'm not a pacifist. I'm not saying we, we should never ever go to war or not like that. We, I think we should have nukes. I think we should be willing to use them, in fact, if, if we were to be threatened. Um, we've got to use them in a way that doesn't you know, maximize, uh, we don't want to use them and we probably would never have to, but if you're not willing to use them, Again, they don't work. Um, so I'm not being a pacifist, but I do, I do think um, I don't want the military to, to be an overly important part of British society. Yeah. Sam, just a very quick reaction in three sentences on yeah, well, Do you agree uh, with the private mercenaries? Is the, that mercenaries the, the mercenaries are definitely the most fascinating thing about what Jamie brings up. And look, I agree with you. I think to an extent, there are lots of things there that I would look to encourage, including Jamie says the ability to test, the ability to come up with kit that actually gets used rather than the white elephants that the MOD incentivizes. The trouble is, though, and, and I think this is a, is, is a genuine one, is look, the Wagner group uh, is clearly not going to, however high an offer we make, take our side against the Russians uh, in a war. It's just not. Um, look, do I think the, the there is an argument for the UK... Um, reducing barriers actually for uh, private military companies to operate out of the UK, notwithstanding the scandals over the last couple of decades. Actually, yes, I do. And that would probably be a, a good thing that we should encourage. But we shouldn't delude ourselves around the fact that things like matters of war can operate in a perfect market. Even Adam Smith didn't, of course. Adam Smith, of course, said you shouldn't really allow your neighbours those being responsible for the conflict back then, to, to um, build up any dominance or you to rely on them in, in certain strategic um, categories of goods. So I think there's always this tension between the, the ideals we'd want in a perfect world and the real world of state conflict that we have to live in. Thank you so much, Sam and Jamie, for the discussion. I think we all do share the view that no matter how much money we will end up spending in the British military, hopefully we will not need to use them um, as often. Um, also, many thanks to our dear audience. Uh, thanks for joining. And please don't hesitate to share your thoughts below this video or indeed on Twitter at IELondon. Um, special thanks to our donors, without whom our work at the IE would not be possible. If you do wish to contribute yourself, uh, please do consider subscribing to the IE Patreon account where you can receive a lot of the exclusive content and have a sneak peek into behind the scenes as well. But for now, thanks a lot for joining and I hope to see you in two weeks time again.